you know, there's a struggle in, in preaching, in teaching that you really want to, you know, be practical. You want to be practical. And um, that's not bad. That's a good thing to be practical. We want to have some applications. How does this apply to our lives? What are we going to do with this? But there's a point where, you know, practically speaking, the greatest thing we need is a bigger vision of God in our lives. I mean, we can be practical. Well, you need to do this. You need to, here's three things to have a better marriage according to the Word of God. And here's four things to have better finances according to the Word of God. And here's seven things to do this and do that because seven is the number of perfection. So you always got to have outlines with that. And, then we, and there's, there's a place for that. And the Word of God is practical. And there are tons of principles that apply to all these different things. But first and foremost, the place that we need to begin is just a bigger vision of who God is. Because the reality is when the bottom falls out in your life, when your marriage is struggling, when your finances are going down the drain, when there's issues with kids, when there's sickness, when there's, um, you know, whatever the circumstances in your life, principles don't really matter in that moment, do they? At that point, you kind of have to drill down to the foundation and say, really, what is my foundation? And what do I really believe? And in that moment, the only thing that's going to sustain you is your understanding and your vision of God. And if the God that you have fashioned in your brain, with or without the Bible, is a little God created in your image, it's not going to help a lot. Okay, But if your God is the God of the Bible, as revealed in the Word of God, and you have an accurate view of Him as He has accurately, infallibly, without error, revealed Himself to us, then you will have a vision of a God who is mighty to save, capable to save, able to save. And even if his salvation is sustaining you in the midst of martyrdom, which is happening daily around the world, particularly in the Middle East, Christians are being slaughtered every day. Last week in Oregon, Christians being slaughtered. Are you a Christian? Bullet to the brain. You're not a Christian? Bullet to the leg. Oregon college campus not talked about gun control is the conversation persecuted persecution of christians not the conversation in our country nobody wants to talk about that that's not the issue christians gunned down in charleston it's a racial issue that's it what certainly racist was, was, was a part of it but also there's some guys in a, a, a some godly folks in a bible study and they're gunned down as followers of Christ, and they extend abundant grace to the shooter as followers of Christ. That is pushed aside. But the only thing that sustained them is not their view of political justice. What has sustained those believers is their understanding of who God is and His faithfulness. And so as believers, what is our foundation? I mean, we're living in crazy times. And so trite little coffee cup sayings, you know, little things printed on coffee cups, is not going to sustain us. We need a great vision, an understanding of who God is and His promises and His faithfulness. And that is what we get in this passage. God has made His covenant with Abraham years ago, 400 plus years ago. He had made His covenant with Abraham and Abraham's future descendants, that they would be a great nation and that he would give them a land in which they would flourish, a chosen land. But he did tell them in Genesis chapter 15 that there would be a season of time, there would be a period for about 430 years where they would find themselves in captivity and in slavery, and they would be enslaved. But in that period, they would become a mighty nation, and God would deliver them from that place and would send them to this land that he was going to give them, back to Canaan, to the land of Canaan, and he would give them Canaan, and he would show his faithfulness and in delivering them from that place. And he told them that, that time wasn't up yet because he was waiting for the sins of the Canaanites, giving them some extended time to repent and follow God. And if they didn't, that their sins would be stored up and then he would bring judgment upon them. So that's the future story. But nonetheless, God was faithful in his promise. And then I want to show you just a couple of the verses that uh, are worth mentioning. Genesis chapter 17. And I will establish... My covenant between me and you and your offspring, between me, God, you, Abraham, and your offspring, which at this point Abraham didn't have any kids, me and you and your offspring after you, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God 
uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be God to you, to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. In other words, the land you're wandering in, which is in Canaan, and all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So I have a plan. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to give you a place to live, and I'm going to provide for you, and you're going to be with me, and this is an everlasting covenant. And he ratified that covenant, interestingly enough, by um, having Abraham cut some animals in half, sacrifice some animals, and then God passed through manifesting himself in fire. This boiling pot of fire passes through And the covenant was based upon the faithfulness of God. Here's the interesting thing about covenants. If you're married, you have made a covenant with another individual, okay? That's part of, we talk talk about the marriage covenant. It's not a contract that can be nullified at whatever whim somebody has. It's a covenant between two individuals before God. But here's the problem with a covenant. The covenant is only as good as the faithfulness of the parties involved. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was based upon not His faithfulness and Abraham's faithfulness and the faithfulness of Abraham's people, it was based upon his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, period. Because he knew that Abraham would fail and that Abraham's descendants would fail. And this covenant at risk in the nullification and the failure of this covenant was the fame and the glory and the trustworthiness of God and his name and his glory and his reputation. And so because God is passionate about his name and his glory and his reputation, he has been faithful to keep his covenant from generation to generation to generation all the way to now. Not because Abraham and his descendants have ever been faithful. Not because Abraham and his descendants have ever, ever been worthy of that kind of commitment, but because God is passionate and is jealous for his name and the integrity of his name. Now, we understand even in our culture, you're only as good as your name, right? Right? And so you think about a business, branding is such an important thing. And if your image begins to dive, you have to rebuild the image and refresh the image and come up with a new image and and try to reboot it. And if it doesn't work, then you close it down, you come up with something else, right? And you're constantly trying to maintain the image of things. And so we precisely know in our commercialized marketing world that we live in that image is a big deal. And I want you to understand that God knows a thing or two about image and knows a thing or two about branding. And he has established the integrity of his name And it's not a passing brand, but it has always been and it will always be. And he has revealed himself to Abraham at the burning bush in a way that nobody had ever known him before. And he he told Moses that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me, but they didn't know me as Yahweh, as the one who causes everything to be. I am that I am. And they didn't understand the significance of my name in a way that I'm going to reveal myself to you, Moses, and to my people into the world now. And that's what we're going to see this morning. In Exodus chapter 20, he goes on to say, this is a little further on the book, so we're looking ahead. This is in the passage, in the midst of God giving him the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. Let me pause there for a second. I don't want to get off in too much of a tangent, but let me just, in the event that you are thinking in your mind, well, I thought First Corinthians 13 says, love is not jealous and god's calling himself jealous and so god's not really loving then if he's not calling him i mean that doesn't compute i don't understand what's the deal with this we are not to be jealous because when we're jealous we become self-centered we are insecure we are there's a lot of problems in our jealousy but god loves with a pure love god loves with a pure love and god would be unloving If he was not jealous for us, if God was not a jealous God, God will not share us and our love and our affection with other people. Okay, God, for him to tolerate you loving him and you loving all the different idols in your life and me loving all the different idols in my life, God would be very evil and wrong for him to do that. Because why would he let us 
play with things that will destroy us? Why would he let us surround our lives with things that will destroy and kill and, um, and wound us? He's a jealous God in that he loves us with a perfect love in that he refuses to allow us to love him plus other things. In the same context, marriage is a jealous love. In fact, the Song of Solomon talks about that. Uh, that, that marriage is a jealous love. That I, I'm not going to share my wife with other people, and she's not going to share me with other people. There's not, we, we have a jealous love. In other words, it's completely dedicated to one another. Okay, And that's the picture that God is giving us here. So, sorry for that little tangent. Uh, so, for I am the Lord, your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments, who live according to the covenant I have made with them. Here's the big idea this morning. God is bigger, more powerful, more mighty than you realize or can comprehend. God is bigger, more mighty, more glorious than you realize or you can possibly comprehend. That's why we have we need passages like this because it confronts us with the reality that our version of God is a little small. And we need to be confronted with that reality so that we can expand the box that we put God in, okay? And so we we can only understand God as much as our brain can comprehend based on the experiences and the definitions of the things we know, and we just need to understand that God is beyond our definitions, beyond our experiences, beyond our perception. He is beyond our comprehension. Okay, and so God is bigger than you realize or able to comprehend. Number two, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will fulfill that which he has promised. God is faithful. He will fulfill what he has promised. And lastly, God is mighty to save. God is abundantly able to save or with the series to rescue his children. God can rescue. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's coming down the pike. I don't know what's happening. But I want you to understand that whatever the, the, the sin and temptation, whatever the suffering, whatever the doubt, whatever the struggle, whatever the anxiety, whatever the conflict, whatever the problem in your life, if you would just take these three, Simple principles, principle truths, and would say, okay, God is bigger than I realize, or I can comprehend. Number one. Number two, God is faithful to his promises. And number three, God is able to rescue and to save. If you will just remember those three truths about God, it will completely change your outlook and your understanding of whatever it is that you are dealing with. With that, I want to go to Exodus Chapter 10, verse 21, the ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived in the land of Goshen. They had light. They were able to see. No problem there. But in Egypt, the Egyptians, they had no light. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go. Serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain Behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. We do not know with what, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive. We don't know what God's going to want us to sacrifice. We don't know what animals he wants us to use. And so therefore, we need them all because we don't know. And that's the, that's the original plan here. <clears throat> and Moses has not compromised on one uh, level. He's coming back to the original request. And so, verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them 
go. Pharaoh said to him, get away from me and take care never to see my face again. For on the day you shall see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. The ninth plague. Observation, some things to think about in this plague. Uh, This was a darkness. We don't understand it. And there's been lots of people who have hypothesized other things. It could be a sandstorm. That would clearly, you would feel that. That would be, um, that was not uncommon for winds to shift in that part of the world and to come up from the the deserts beneath them and to blow sand or dust. And and it would, it would blacken out the sun uh, and it would make everything very difficult to be able to function. But it seems like uh, I don't see any way around the fact that this is just a supernatural act of God. And certainly, could he use sand? Yes. Could he use dust? Certainly, he could do it however he wants to do it. But it's kind of odd that it's in one part of the land, and then there's a little section that it's not in that part of the land. And I'm not quite sure how that would work for him to buffer. The other thing is, the bottom line is, they could feel it, and they could, they could not function. So they could light a lamp. They could put a little oil lamp, light the wick, and try to function. But it was such a darkness that the lamp would not light or it would not be able to be seen. It was such a darkness that they literally could not function. There was no, it was, they were unable to get past it and all they could do is just sit in their house and wait. So God graciously lifted the hand of his judgment. I don't know if you've ever been in uh, perfect darkness, had an opportunity to cave in Hampton, Tennessee years ago. And that was the first time to my recollection that I'd ever been in complete darkness, that once you get down into the cave system, you get far enough in there, and that's a kind of a creepy feeling being in there, and we're marking with chalk. A little, uh, it's kind of funny. We were putting everybody who had been before us, they would put little arrows with chalk to help them find the way out. And there were so many arrows, it was like, well, this is really going to help. So we started putting little fish. We put ichthuses. We thought that was great. Jesus maybe will help us more be able to get out and we could survive. And so we did that. And we went down deep into this, this um, cave system, and it was really pretty cool. Uh, but nonetheless, one of the things, at one point, we turned our lights out. And you could sit there for five minutes. You could sit there for five hours. really doesn't matter. At no point are your eyes going to adjust to perfect darkness. You can't see anything. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You can't see anything. It's incredible to be in that kind of darkness. It was almost a darkness you could feel. But this was even beyond that. This is a, a darkness that even lighting your lamp wouldn't make a difference. They couldn't function. It was a darkness so thick that they could not function pitch black now this was incredibly frustrating for pharaoh because pharaoh was the god of the sun pharaoh was known to be the god of the sun and pharaoh clearly the other plagues had shown god's power over certain gods but this one was getting a little personal now because now pharaoh the god of the sun was unable to eat effect was unable to to um to fight back against this utter darkness that had consumed his land and he couldn't do anything he was powerless to fight it clearly there was a god more powerful than little g god pharaoh light is is something that is common to all people all over the world everybody benefits this is what we call common grace also general revelation god has revealed himself to everybody through the light, through the sun. Everybody benefits from the light. Everybody gets it. Every tribe, every tongue, every person all over the world, they benefit from the light. They benefit it. And it's like God in one moment said, you know what? I have blessed you for your lives with something that you have taken for granted that's so simple to the point where you turned it into an object to worship thinking that you can control the sun, Pharaoh, And so I'm going to take this common gift that everybody has been given, and I'm going to take it from you for three days. You don't get to play with my gift, and I'm going to shut it off. And the God who spoke light into existence on the first day and on the fourth day created a source for it, the sun. Get that. He created light before he created the sun. We'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Has now blackened egypt to where they can't see anything and it is pitch black darkness creates kind of a solitary confinement in our lives where distractions can't be chased after and the the quietness 
just reveals and exposes our conscience. You ever have that moment, maybe it's in sickness, maybe it's whatever circumstances where, where everything is just complete silence. Doesn't happen a lot in our house. Got a lot of kids and a lot of activity and a lot of things going on. But, but there's, there's those moments where there's just complete and utter silence. And you hear that little ringing in the back of your ears. You're thinking, wow, we're, I don't, normally don't even hear that ringing. I didn't know there was a ringing in the back of my ear. But it's the, it's the, I don't know if it's a response of so much noise typically or the fact that now there's no noise. And you suddenly, and, and in those moments where you're by yourself and you're isolated and there's nobody else around, what happens often is we don't have a distraction. We start to think thoughts that we don't like to think. We start to ask questions we don't like to ask. Our conscience begins to gnaw away at us and we start to get lost and we lose our foundations and our footing and our perspective and everything begins to go away. This is why prisoners often, when they're not obeying or acting right or whatever, are placed in solitary, solitary confinement. They're placed in a situation where they're isolated from else and they get no social interaction. It's a way to punish them for the fact that when they're interacting, it's not healthy. <laughs> so they put them by themselves. A, this is a common way that, that prisoners of war have been uh, mistreated by putting, putting them in a black box or a dark dungeon or a hole where, where they have no interaction, no light, and, they're stuck. and often they will struggle and often go crazy because of that isolation. And so God puts them in a place where their deepest questions cannot be silenced and they begin to wrestle with really what is going on in their land and what has God done what have they done? And what, who is this God of the Hebrews that has shown his power? And he is mightier than any of the gods of Egypt. With exception of one that has not yet been challenged. And that is the ninth plague. A couple other things. Uh, Pharaoh, he tries to make another compromise. We see that. You know, he's unwilling. He's, he's at the, almost at his wit's end. But he finally, okay, look, you can go. Your kids can go, your families can go, everybody can go, but you got to leave your, your herds behind. You gotta leave. I, I need to know that you're going to come back. You can't completely go for it. But I'm, I'm at the point where, okay, fine. You all can go as long as you need whatever, go, but just leave your, leave your herds behind. And God says, Pharaoh says, or Moses says, no, can't do that. Verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. That's the last 15 minutes of last week's sermon. You can look at that online if you want to hear about God hardening his heart. And so that is the ninth plague. Let's go to the final plague. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 11, verse 1, Yet one plague more, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the peoples that they, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and for gold and jewelry. He's saying of neighbors as in he's asking the Hebrews to ask the Egyptians for gold, silver, and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. So this Moses, who represents the one true God, because of God's faithfulness and power, Moses is beginning to get a little bit of a reputation in the land, and God is giving him favor in the eyes of the people and exalting and lifting up Moses as a representative of God in the sight of the nation, and then it says here, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of all the people. Verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight, and I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses, evidently, Pharaoh's already told him, I don't want to ever see your face again, but before he left, we don't know the 
order of the conversation, but before he left, evidently Moses warned him of this last plague. Here's what's going to happen. And then Moses left in anger. And I, I don't know why. We, we don't, we're not told why he's so mad. But I can't help but think he's mad for a couple reasons because he knew either way, either way, 10th plague or not, the people are going to go. God's faithful, and he made a promise, and he has shown himself to be consistent. And when a plague has been warned, he has brought judgment again and again and again. And he knew what's going to happen. And he didn't understand why is Pharaoh so thick-headed, so stubborn-hearted, so unwilling to humble himself before God, who has shown his power and his might to the nth degree. Why is he so unwilling to relent and repent and just say, okay, just go? Why must it come to this final and last judgment? Why is it necessary that the firstborn of everybody in the land and every single animal has to die because of the stubbornness of one man, because of the sin of one man, everybody's going to pay. Every household will be affected. And I think that's probably the anger that that Moses felt. How can he refuse to see God's word as true? Everything he has said has happened. Why would he not relent? And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these things, all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let his people go out of his land. And then Exodus, if you will jump from chapter 12 down to verse 29, and I want to just give you the summary. We're going to come back, and we're going to look at the Exodus, I mean at the Passover in more depth next week. But I just want to focus on the plague itself now. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. So the first thing to note in this plague is that it it affected everybody. Everybody in the land from the highest official pharaoh to the lowliest person in the land, it affected everybody. It affected everybody. And then it says that Moses, that Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants of the Egypt of the Egyptians, and he realized what had happened. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Everybody, if you have kids, if every family that had kids, and that was pretty common, everybody had kids and or was a kid, right? Everybody was a kid or had kids. And the firstborn of every family, doesn't seem like age even matters in this, drops dead. They're dead. They're gone. Heads of households, children, doesn't matter what age, the the strength and the future and the hope of Egypt in that night was gone, and every household was affected. They were all dead. Every home, someone was dead. And then verse 31, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and then it's, this is a really interesting little phrase there. It's three words. And bless me. And bless me. Like in that moment of weakness and of grief and of pain, finally Pharaoh just humbled himself just, just a little bit. Just go. Just get out of my land. Just get out of here. But, but bless me. I pray that maybe things will turn. Maybe we can turn the ship around. Maybe there'll be a restoration. Maybe there's a new hope for Egypt. Maybe there's a... But if there's any hope for the future, I know that your God has shown his power over and he has brought judgment upon our nation to the point of he's brought us to utmost destruction. And so if there's any hope in the future, whether I believe in your God or not, I know he's powerful and I'm asking you to ask him on our behalf. Please ask him to bless us. Bless me. Now, heart will change quickly, but that's the passage. Now, I want to back up, and I want to give you some um, verses. In God's rescue of his people, he set out to declare and to demonstrate his power in a way that had never been seen before, with the exception of, uh, and never would be seen, 
again, with the exception of two future events that will happen uh, in, in the future. But he shows his power in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Let me just write down a reference, and I'll, I'll, let me read it for you, and I want to emphasize just part of it. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, He has sent me, Moses, to you, Hebrew people. He says, This is my name forever. I am that I am, the Lord, Yahweh. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my name. This is who I am. I want to reveal my personal name to you, and I want you to remember me by this name. That means I am the one who causes all things to be. I cause everything to be. I'm the God who causes everything from nothing to be. I am that I am. Then verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by my mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. The plagues. After this, though, will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. You have been slaves and you have been forced to work against your will for generations. And I want you to know that you're about to get a paycheck. And you're going to get an inheritance, and you're not going to leave this land empty-handed. You're going to get paid for the work that you have done, and you are going to be given great possessions and great wealth in this. And I'm going to do this through my great wonders that I'm going to show, through my great power. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. El Shaddai will be the name there. God Almighty. But by... The name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, I have not revealed myself to them as the one who causes all to be. I haven't shown them to the detail that you're understanding who I am. I've never revealed myself quite this clearly to them in my power, in a way that you're going to see my power, Abraham, I mean, uh, Moses and the Hebrew people. You're going to see my power in a way that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never saw my power like this. Verse 6 of chapter 6, I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out under, from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bless you with the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give you possessions because I am am the lord again branding god is making it clear it's my power it's my might it's my glory it's my name it's my wonders it's my ability to save to change to deliver to transform to give you possessions and stuff in a land and all these things are gifts from me that hopefully will elevate your understanding of who i am that you can enjoy how incredibly amazing and powerful and awesome and glorious and sufficient I am. I want you to know me in a way that, that even your forefathers didn't completely understand who I was. I'm going to reveal myself to you. And through this suffering that you've experienced, it won't even matter as you see how I'm going to deliver you. And this is an interesting, really interesting verse. Chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke these things to the people of Israel. I, I think it's worth saying this. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery realize god has just said i'm going to reveal myself in such a mighty powerful glorious way and yet they didn't have the faith because of the pain and the suffering and the stuff that they had been through they were so jaded their understanding of god that they were unable to really even see it and yet god did it remember i said a moment ago the covenant god has made with us is not based upon our ability to keep it or our understanding of it, but it's based upon His name and His integrity and His power and His faithfulness. This is an example of that. In the midst of it, they have been through so much. Isn't it incredibly refreshing to understand that regardless of the fact that you are faithless, you doubt, you wonder, your hearts run after other gods all the time, all of us are so faithless on such a regular basis that God's faithfulness is not contingent upon your faithfulness 
but yet he loves you exactly where you're at in your doubts, in your pain, in your suffering, in your hurts, in your jadedness. loves you in that. And he doesn't want to leave you there, but he's faithful to bring you past that, that you would grow. There's actually a passage in Psalms that talks about God leading them out of the land of Egypt and the Exodus, and it likens God walking his people like a father would hold the hand of his child as he leads them in their limited knowledge and understanding of the world, graciously leads them out into freedom. And that's what God does for you. That's what God is doing for me. God has taken us where we're at in our immaturity and our lack of faithfulness, and he has grabbed our hand, and he's walking us and rescuing us. If we would just see the greatness of who God is. Chapter 7, verse 4, it says that the Egyptians say, shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name, my name, my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. And then chapter 10, verse 1, I'm going to do these signs, that what signs I have done among you that you may know that I am the Lord. We fast forward to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, so what's the big idea? Well, plagues 1 through 3 affected, arguably affected the Egyptians and the Hebrews. They suffered those two, we think. It doesn't really say that they did, but it didn't say that they didn't. We know that plagues 4 through 9, God made a distinction between the Hebrew people and the, and the uh, Egyptians, and so he clearly made a distinction, a line of delineation, and the, his people, he preserved. And they did not suffer the consequences of those plagues, but the Egyptians felt the full wrath of those plagues. But this is a unique plague, this final plague, because this is the only one of all the plagues where they had to do something to avoid the, fl- the plague. They had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on their doorway. And if they did not do that and hide inside in a home with the blood on the doorpost, then they would feel the wrath of this plague also. So it wasn't just a clear distinction. These are my people, so they're not going to suffer. These are the Egyptians, so they're going to suffer. They, everybody who was unwilling to put the blood on their doorpost, they were going to suffer, and they were going to feel the wrath of this plague. And so, and again, God, lest you think that God is mean, and, and how could he do such a thing? Chapter 4, verse 22 and verse 23, he had already warned that this was going to happen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is my firstborn son, Israel. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Chapter 4, we're at chapter 12 now, okay? Eight chapters ago, before the plagues even began, God has already warned Pharaoh through Moses, if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And here is the fulfillment of this. The death of the firstborn seems harsh, but is nonetheless laced with grace god could have destroyed the entire nation because of their sin or half the nation but or anything in between but god has graciously only chosen to kill the firstborn son unless our hearts begin to question the justice of god we think well this isn't a just act how could god be so mean as to do that why would he do that to the whole nation was it not pharaoh and the egyptians who first called for the death of every Hebrew boy, did they not first say, we're going to kill every Hebrew boy that's born from this point forward? Was it not Pharaoh and his people that carried out and threw the babies into the Nile River to their deaths? And now God is bringing this back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. Look, God is patient. God gives us a lot of rope sometimes, but he will bring his judgment in due time. And he will avenge and establish his justice. 
All right, in the last couple moments, this is the whole big idea. I've got to bring this together for you. And so uh, put your hats on. This is where we're going. God has declared his power and his might in a way that has never been seen before. And I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 1 when God creates. And it tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God, that the earth was formless and void. And so in creation, God does, in the six days of creation, he does three things. The first three days, he forms. The second three days, he fills. Formless and void. He's going to take that which is void and fill it. He's going to take that which is formless and form it. And so the first day of creation, he creates light. Second day, water. The third day, Land and vegetation. Water, he separates the firmament above and below. So there's water on the ground. There's water, a vapor canopy, I think, that surrounded the whole world. So he separates water above, water below. On the third day, we have land and vegetation. And then on the fourth day, he's going to begin the process of filling that which he has formed. And so on the fifth day, we have the uh, fourth day, we have the sun and the moon and the stars. On the fifth day, we have the birds and the fish. Filling the air, filling the water, the firmament above and the firmament below. And on the final day, we have animals and man. God puts creatures on the earth. Seventh day, we know God rested. So when we look at the plagues, clearly God has shown his power over the little g gods of Egypt. Clearly he's done that. But I want you to understand, that is a secondary point that God is making. There's a primary point that God is making in the plagues that goes back to the creation and actually foreshadows the judgment of the seals of judgment in Revelation, the trumpets and the bowls of wrath. They line up with the same thoroughness of God's judgment over his creation. And here's what we find. God has shown his power over the heavens. God has shown his power by creating the waters. And thirdly, God has shown his power by forming and filling the land. Forms and fills the heavens, forms and fills the waters, forms and fills the land. So three things, heavens, the water, and the land. In the plagues, here's what happens. God shows his power over the waters in the first two plagues. He brings a plague against the blood, I mean, the plague of the blood, which turns all the water in the land to blood. And the second plague is the frogs, which come out of the water. And so they come out of the river Nile, come out of, and they cover the whole land. So God has shown his power over the water to bring blood, to turn it to blood, and to bring amphibians out of the water that would cover the whole land. God has shown his power over the waters. The second section of the bulk of the plagues, God shows his power over the land. He brings flies and he brings gnats. He brings flies and he brings gnats on those. Um, actually, this should be reversed. Uh, third day, he brings the lice gnats, the biting ni- uh, lice, uh, biting gnats, likely. And then on the fourth plague, he brings flies that cover the whole land, also probably biting, pestering um, flies that cover the whole land. And then the next plagues, plague number five and plague number six, he brings judgment upon not only the land, but the creatures of the land as he brings judgment over the disease. He diseases the livestock, get disease and are dying, and then boils upon every human, every person in Egypt. And then we have the next two, over the vegetation. He brings hail and fire. And so the hail, the lightning, the thunder comes down and it destroys the crops. It destroys all of the crops with the exception of there's still a little bit that's, that's standing. And what is left? The little bit of the crops, which is, which is the food for the nation. It's not like they can just call up another order to Walmart and stock the shelves again. Okay, this is their future food. This is their portions for the next season. They've, they're growing all this. It's really critical. The, the wealth, uh, the... the uh, the health of their nation, the sustenance of their nation is in these, these crops and this harvest that they're hoping to get. And it's destroyed by hail. And what the little bit that's left is destroyed by locusts. They come and they eat everything on the ground, everything that's still in the trees, everything. They eat it all. It's gone. Completely destroyed. All the food of Egypt. And then we have two last plagues. God has shown his power over the water. God has shown his power over the land. So that remains one last plague. God is going to show his power over the heavens. And so the ninth plague, showing that the God of the sun is not as powerful as he thought he was. And so he shows Pharaoh that uh, he brings darkness in that judgment. And so he shows his power over the sun. But there's one left, and it's the moon. He said, well, how's, what's the moon have to do with this? Well, how does the moon have anything to do with this? Well, understand, if the God of the sun is Pharaoh, who do you think the God of the moon is? 
Pharaoh's firstborn son. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Jewish calendar and the Passover, but the Passover is always celebrated on a full moon. The middle of the month, the lunar calendar, it's a full moon. And it was on that day that likely, we understand from the history of Egypt and from studying this this people group, that on the, the full moon day, the day of the full moon, they would worship the God of the moon. And so it would not be beyond comprehension that they possibly, this very night, were bowing down and were worshiping Khonsu, the firstborn son of Pharaoh, the God of the moon, praying to him, for his future, praying to him for their future, praying for them for hope. And it was that night that he was struck dead. God has shown his power over the heavens in that he has darkened the sun and he has silenced the moon. Sobering way, God has shown that he has brought massive judgment against this nation, the water, the land, and the heavens. We are told in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. It goes on to say, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Tutmosis II was likely the Pharaoh who threw the babies into or commanded that the babies be thrown into the Nile River, first generation. Second generation, Tutmosis III, Hatshitsip, the daughter of Pharaoh, would have been in that second generation. And then the third generation was Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II was the one who the others had died, and so it was safe for Moses to come back because the people who wanted him dead for killing the Egyptian back earlier in the story are gone now. And so he goes to to Amenhotep II, and this is the one that that God's been bringing the plagues against. And so God has brought his judgment, not the first, then the second, the third generation, and then the fourth generation would have been the son of Amenhotep II. And so mythological systems, pantheistic systems, they, they devise their gods around the creation. They have to explain how everything has come to be, and so they just worship the creation, and they come up with some system to, to apply their whatever political structures, whatever, to worship man and to worship their gods that they've created in their own image. And God has shown unequivocally that he is the one and only who causes everything to be. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. I am that I am. And I am over. My power is over the waters. And my power is over the land. And my power is over the heavens. I am the God who transcends all your little gods. And yes, I have shown power over your little gods, but I'm far more than that. God's not in it to play a little game to show, well, you got a frog God? Well, let me, let me bring frogs against you. you got a God of the Nile? Well, let me turn the... Well, God is not playing the game. He is showing us for all time, everybody who has ever lived, everybody who will ever live, that he is the only one who can cause something to come from nothing. He spoke the creation into existence. We have created Hubble telescopes and different things. We have little rover things that go to different planets to check things out. And our telescopes have still not been able to see the wall on the end of the universe that God measures with the palm of his hand. God has declared his glory through the heavens of which we have not even seen the limit of. We have not even been able to find the walls on the heavens that God has spoken in existence on the fourth day of creation. He is powerful over the world. And yet we doubt his ability to save us. We doubt his sovereignty in our lives. We doubt his promises and his faithfulness. And we look to false gods We run after them thinking they will sustain us. We have our piddly little careers and families and this and that and all these different things that we think somehow are going to give us significance in life instead of finding them in Christ and Him alone. We desperately need to recalibrate our lives. We don't need five application points on what to do. We just need to drop our perspective and our worldview and rebuild it with a big view of God. With Jesus on the throne. And with Jesus alone, in his name alone, who, by the way, we know in the New Testament is the only name by which man can be saved, the name of Jesus Christ, that every tongue and every tribe and every knee will bow one day and will worship Jesus 
Christ. And so he alone is worthy. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us that it was through, get this, Jesus Christ that the world came into being. Not God the Father, not God the Spirit, but God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who created everything and caused everything to be. In fact, Jesus is Yahweh. I am that I am, Jesus said. And the people fell down in his presence when he spoke those words. The big idea, God is bigger than you realize. He's bigger than you realize, than you're able to comprehend. God is faithful to his promises, and God is mighty to save and to rescue. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not, that there would not be a person within the sound of my voice, regardless of age, that would walk out of this room as Pharaoh did, hardening their hearts to the God who has declared his sovereignty in such a miraculous and amazing way in the true events of the Exodus. But God, that we would surrender our lives. And for, for those of us that struggle, that struggle, God, we are still, our, we have such an appetite for Egypt. We have such an appetite for the world, even though that time in our lives represented slavery, darkness, despair, and yet we still, we still long for the, the flavors of the world. And yet you have given us the bread of life. You have given us the living water. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness, the knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. So, Father, may we find and rest in the reality that Jesus alone is our hope, our rescue. May we rest there. God, would you take these truths and restructure our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.